Hello and welcome to Try iPod. I'm here with Dr. Scott Brody. So, Dr. Brody, what do you do and why? Okay, well, I'm a professor of ophthalmology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and I split my time between seeing patients at Mount Sinai, uh, serving as a consultant to the ophthalmic oncology clinic at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and uh, supervising the retina clinic at the Bronx VA Hospital. My main goal in all of this is to uh, preserve vision for my patients, help them see as well as they're capable of, and to uh, try at the same time to advance the state of knowledge in the field. The outcome of the the MD-PhD experience is that I think of both the research and the clinical work as different sides of the same coin, and I try to arrange my my life so that uh, I can't really tell where one starts and the other stops. It's interesting that you say that because I think that that is true to um, what a lot of other alumni have said about how the uh, the tri-institutional program has kind of shaped their careers. What experiences did you bring with you as a first year? Or if you felt like you were prepared okay. or... Um, well, I uh, came to the program uh, following four very exciting years as an undergraduate where I had triple majored in math, biology, and chemistry and completed a master's degree in mathematics. And um, so I brought with me a very wide background in the sciences um, with emphasis in in quantitative work and um, physical chemistry. Mm -hmm. I had spent a summer uh, doing research uh, at a lab up at the uh, Children's Hospital in Boston where we had worked on uh, physical properties of chromatin and uh, that's, I think, the experience that got me very excited on the research uh, end of the medical business. I heard of the uh, combined program here and applied and was fortunate to be accepted, and uh, uh, so I landed here in New York for an interview, and the first interview uh, of many that day was uh, with a scientist at Rockefeller who was studying vision and uh, with a, a very quantitative approach and I was very excited about that. And there were several other interviews, of course, uh, various institutions. Um, And then uh, when I arrived at the beginning of July to start the summer before medical school, uh, I was asked to pick a laboratory. And uh, I asked if I might possibly start at this laboratory where I had uh, started my interviews. And they said, well, let's go say hello and see. And so I walked in and reintroduced myself. And they they said, oh, we've, we've been looking forward to your coming back. And uh, I started there and uh, uh, got right to work for that summer and uh, I never left. Uh, In those days, we didn't have mandatory rotations at different laboratories. Mm -hmm. So I I jumped right in and and, and, uh, from there, it was uh, pretty seamless uh, into ophthalmology and vision research. At the time, there weren't mandatory changes between labs, um, but you, there were still transitions between medical school and like PhD research, that sort of thing. How did you deal with making those transitions or sort of the changes that come with that? Okay, well, certainly the, uh, the entry into medical school was uh, something of a shock for all of us, I think. Um, I don't think any of us were quite as uh, prepared as we could possibly have been. Uh, The sheer amount of information we were expected to absorb. Uh, We started with a uh, 
special seminar uh, just for the MD-PhD students um, on immunology, which was a field I had no experience in. And they said, okay, uh, here, take uh, this major textbook and just read all of it and come prepared to start discussing current cutting-edge research at our first seminar. And I remember sitting there in uh, my spare time uh, in my dorm room with this large textbook on my lap and Stedman's dictionary on the side table, initially looking up every other word as if it were a foreign language. Wow. And um, so uh, you know, by the time the September came around, I, I was already into the swing of it. But uh, you know, at that point, you know, we were just thrown in with all the other medical students, and basically we had the same experience that they did. And um, we just worked very hard, absorbed a great deal of material. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the summers came, we uh, uh, came back to our laboratories, and in my case, to the same laboratory that I had been at before. And um, uh, they had a special seminar series for us um, about uh, uh, cutting-edge research. We called it the Biomedical Seminar, uh, which was, was a chance to meet leading-edge, uh, leading researchers from around the country and discuss uh, cancer and, and uh, immunology and a few other subjects. Um, and then uh, when we went into the laboratory, uh, we had an ongoing experience in uh, uh, basically to try and keep our physical diagnosis and clinical skills alive, uh, meeting and discussing a patient every week. And um, uh, I think that sort of just barely kept us in the game. And um, so that coming back to the clinic after the PhD was done uh, was definitely, again, a shock. Um, I remember uh, you know, my last month or two in the, uh, in the research phase was writing my dissertation, which was something that I basically did nocturnally, that I'd wake up around 10 o'clock or so, go to the lab by 11, arrange my research materials, go over the uh, literature or the notebooks, and then uh, after lunch sit down and start writing and take a little break for dinner and then go back to my room and keep writing till about 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I turned out about 10 pages a day for a month solid. So that turned out to be a 300-page thesis, which I don't recommend to anyone. <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, they, they basically said, okay, and now, you know, next Thursday show up at 6 o'clock in the morning to begin your surgery rotation. Oh. And, you know, the, the, the jet lag was, was <laughs> extraordinary. And there was a few words of introduction, and then they brought us over to the floor, and we started to round on patients. And I started feeling faint. And I remember gripping the rail on the side of the bed so as not to fall over. Wow. And uh, but you know, a week or two of that, and you acclimate, you, <laughs> your 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 uh, circadian rhythms adjust, mm-hmm. and um, and so then it was uh, you know, full tilt uh, in, into the world of clinical medicine. And um, you know, there were uh, there was a little bit of, of awkwardness um, finding myself uh, a rank beginner. Uh, in the, I guess, the final rotation of the third year for my classmates. So they were just finishing up as I was just starting, and I looked like a real klutz. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what goes around comes around, and uh, after a brief break in August, we came back for the next rotation in September, and there, then there was a, a new group of third years who didn't know anything, and by then I was experienced having survived a surgical rotation, so I looked pretty good. <laughs> And so, uh, so it, it all evens out at the end. Great. So, um, in the course of your studies, did you feel 
uh, supported by the wider sort of institutional structures? And if so, how? Did I feel supported? Well, um, like in your individual work? Well, certainly uh, the research experience, I thought, was uh, extremely well supported. I was in a, a, a lively, vigorous laboratory um, with uh, you know, fellow graduate students and postdocs and young faculty and senior faculty, who, when we worked together as a very seamless team. And I spent uh, three years there uh, on my thesis research and uh, got a lot done, published several papers. And um, I really felt this was an ideal apprenticeship into uh, uh, first-rate science. And um, uh, then the, you know, the transition back in, into, into the medical world, um, uh, I won't say that I felt you know, coddled or, 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 or uh, eased into it. It was pretty much uh, you know, show up here and, 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 and jump in. Um, but uh, everybody survived it. So what is your relationship now to the program as an alum? Well, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I, I certainly do my best to encourage the young people I meet to consider um, MD-PhD uh, educational opportunities, and uh, occasionally I have, the chance, have had the chance to advise MD-PhD students uh, in this program or in, uh, uh, at other institutions um, uh, as to their career moves. and. Uh, uh, ophthalmology is not a high uh, uh, popularity uh, specialty for people in this uh, pathway, but uh, there have been a few others, and I've uh, done my best to, to encourage them. Uh, of course, I think it goes without saying that the broader your background in science, uh, the better prepared you are to contribute to the furtherance of knowledge. My approach has always been very interdisciplinary, and I've uh, uh, brought a, a, a deep background in mathematics to the work, um, often in uh, areas where a mathematical approach, <coughs> me, where a mathematical approach has been relatively unusual, mm. and uh, that uh, sometimes makes for a, an awkward fit at first. But if you can make some progress, uh, it's often of an unusual and very productive kind. I remember in my early in my research years at Rockefeller, um, I bumped up against uh, a young professor who was having a problem measuring uh, the size of certain populations of organelles. And uh, I thought I could contribute to that, and I worked hard on it. And we ultimately published a paper, uh, which I later learned became a real classic in the field of cell biology. Um, uh, that gentleman, Ralph Steinman, later went on to win the Nobel Prize. Um, alas, not in the field directly related to the work we had collaborated on, mm -hmm. but still I can say that I, I knew him when, mm -hmm. and that was basically because I could contribute a mathematical insight to his work that, that was not available to other people. That's really, that's incredible. Um, I haven't heard anyone in our current program who has that kind of, that specific angle of interdisciplinary experience, but I know we have at least one person who is also like an MFA and, and things like that, like people who have like humanities backgrounds as well as as well as you know more hard science interests. Well, I will certainly endorse that. Um, I came to the program uh, having spent a lot of time in college playing the oboe, <laughs> and I continued to play wow. uh, as a medical student and grad student, and I continue to play to this day. Wow. It's wonderful to have a hobby. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say in my case, it's it's been essential, and. Um, uh, it, it, it's difficult to keep that sort of thing going because the demands of a medical career uh, and a research career are, are, are great, but 
you deserve to take some time for yourself and to uh, to express yourself in other ways, and I, I do my best to encourage that. Combining clinical work and research is, in a sense, kind of unstable, and the mix of research and clinical time that you spend is constantly contending, and sooner or later, most people tend to veer off very much in one direction or the other. If you're spending 80 or 90 percent of your time doing research, it's hard to remain at the very top of the game as a clinician. And uh, if you're uh, spending 80 or 90 percent of your time as a clinician, it's almost impossible to maintain uh, uh, an active laboratory and, and garner the grant support that you need to continue. In my case, the, the direction has been to spend more and more of my time as a clinician. And so I've had to uh, sort of figure out ways to keep active as a researcher without uh, explicit independent grant support. Um, uh, and uh, But I've been able to do that. And uh, I think the deep background and the commitment uh, is important in that. And as a result, you know, I've developed, you know, some unique expertise uh, in several different very rare diseases and published papers on those. And um, uh, the last decade or so, and I've, you know, collaborated, as I mentioned, with uh, the oncology group in uh, ocular oncology at Sloan Kettering where we've developed a, a cutting-edge uh, form of chemotherapy for intraocular tumors that uh, has, in, in, in one case, increased the uh, salvage rate uh, in the most advanced cases from about 30 or 40 percent to 80 or 90 percent, um, so that it's been possible to make a real contribution, I think, and uh, when all is said and done, I've just uh, uh, published my hundredth paper. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. So. Um, <laughs> so that uh, it's important to appreciate that uh, there are many routes to being a productive uh, MD-PhD uh, apart from uh, getting independently funded and, and, and running your own laboratory. Well, thank you. That was very valuable. Thank you, Dr. Scott Brody, again. It was a pleasure to have you on. That was another episode of Try iPod, the MD-PhD podcast. 